welcome to the Old Dog Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe, and this week we are coming at you with episode 17, where we continue our discussion on preparation for competition. This week, we're lucky enough to be joined by Clay Mayfield. Clay is a very high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt, competes at the adult division. Um, Clay is the best of the best that's out there. Uh, I think he's ranked top three IBJJF. Uh, He fought for a title for uh, Fight to Win. Um, He is an absolute beast, and he, in addition to being a high-level competitor, also owns and runs uh, the Triangle Academy, which is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu academy located in Franklin, Tennessee, which is just right outside of Nashville. Um, he, I think our, our relationship probably first started when um, he had an open mat on Sundays. I think we might have met actually before then. Uh, but in any case, uh, he has an open mat on Sundays that my son begs me to take him to every Sunday <laughs> uh, where it's open to the community and he has a... a, a a number of just high-level competitors there, just absolute killers on the mat, uh, most of them at, from his own gym. And uh, he's always been so welcoming to us and just so open. Um, we, uh, When we were talking about our schedule as far as getting the subject matter out on the podcast in regards to uh, competition preparation, he was a must-have to have on the on the podcast. And he was kind enough to agree to come on and and talk. And we just have an ama- had an amazing conversation. Um, so I really hope you all enjoy it. And uh, we we cover everything from his beginnings and how he got into jujitsu into um, a lot of tools. I think you all can use for your own toolbox. In addition to that, some very inspiring experiences that he went through. That you know. Um, kind of reach the mission of this podcast and that's to touch those people that are out there that are struggling. Um, you know, I, I think that the original, um, motivation for the podcast was really to say, how could we be a tool for those people, um, that might be struggling with jujitsu? Cause that is part of the journey. And, um, you know, whether it's thinking about quitting, not thinking you're good enough and all these things that plague our mind. Um, I think that uh, Clay really gives some inspirational points of view, um, so amazing tools to use. He has one particular mindset that he talks about when he goes out to compete, which I think is invaluable. Um, so I think you, I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Whether you're a competitor, whether you're a coach, um, or just um, you know an enthusiast, um, I think there's something in this podcast for everyone. So I, I really, really hope you enjoy it. I know I enjoyed sitting down and talking with Clay, and. Um, Uh, We'll get that started here in just one second. Right after we talk about our sponsors, um, our sponsors of the week, of course, were brought to you by Revital Health Clinics. Uh, The Revital Health and Wellness Clinic is the premier men's and women's health clinic focused on creating health and preventing disease through the optimization of bioidentical hormones, improved diet, and exercise. Brandon Sweat, nourish practitioner, he's the owner and operator, and he has absolutely just years of experience in the field of hormone optimization and wellness. He'll point you in the right direction. Um, Brandon is the one that I go to for my health and wellness. Um, he's the one I point my training partners to and anybody that I run into um, in regards to um, optimizing their life. If you're struggling with just a low energy, if you're just not performing at the level that you should be, if you're over the age of 30, the idea of getting your levels checked out 
is perfectly reasonable and Brandon's really the one to see. You can contact me at olddogbjj.com. You can text me. Um, you can contact him through their website at revitalhealthclinics.com. I highly encourage you to do that and build a relationship with Brandon. Um, he's one of a kind and he has an amazing program. We're also brought to you by Fight Voodoo Fightwear. Um, they were founded by JT Conway. And JT, he's just an amazing guy with an amazing energy. And he loves combat sports and loves designing clothes for fighters. Um, he's based locally just south of Nashville. And JT's goal is to make Fight Voodoo a premier name in the fight-based clothing company in the world. Uh, please check them out at fightvoodoo.com. Check, you know, specifically check out the I Fight Bullies line of shirts and sweaters. Um, I per, my personal favorite are the Jiu-Jitsu Saves Lives line of shirts. But whatever your uh, your jam is, they've got something there for you. Uh, please check them out. Um, please support those folks that are working hard in the jiu-jitsu community and support them. And I'm telling you, you could not support a harder worker or a better guy than JT. So uh, with that, guys, let's get started with episode 17 on preparation for uh, competition with Clay Mayfield. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Old Dog Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Joe. Thanks for listening. Last week, we were lucky enough, or last episode, I should say, we were lucky enough to have a couple of my training partners on, um, some older guys that talked about, (laughs) and I say older if they're over 30, because now you're in the master's class, um, that talked a little bit about their training preparation, and that was Professor Wes and Professor Jimmy, Um, and we had a phenomenal response. Thank you for everyone that shared that uh, podcast and uh um, it, it probably was the one podcast that we had people listen to for a longer period of time where I was getting the data back and people were still listening. The numbers were still up and that's just super, super, super encouraging. Um, and, uh, we actually were planning on having me my guest today with that group, but unfortunately couldn't make it. And it was kind of nice that he was able to come on his own, um, because he's kind of in a different class. Um, I always say that that the the masters are they're real competitors, but not really. <laughs> they're, I I always sometimes feel like I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons, like getting dressed up to go to a tournament because it's it's when you're in the adult division, it's a whole nother level. And we're lucky enough to have uh, Clay Mayfield, who is a world class. Um, I know for a while you were ranked um, brown belt. I knew you're in the t- you were you ranked? I'm, I'm number three right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Not, not quite at the top, but I'm close. No, that's pretty damn good. Um, that's Yeah, so I got a world-class competitor. Um, uh, how Clay and I met, it's... Man, how did we meet? When was the first time we met? I don't remember the first time that we met um, in person. I remember like seeing you at tournaments and stuff like that. And, yeah. then, and then at some point after I opened the gym, I think we just crossed paths or met at an open mat or something like that. To be honest, it's one of those where we've been around each other for so long, I can't remember what our first contact yeah, was. Yeah, shoot. I can't. I remember first seeing you was when you were posting, when you were, you'd came, you've come to the, the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. Um, you were opening up Triangle Academy, which is located in a kick-ass location. I mean, you got, I don't know how you scored that spot in downtown Franklin. Well, we, uh, we looked for about six months when we, when I knew we were coming to Franklin, we kind of looked around for about six months for a building and then I found that one and then spent the summer kind of renovating it. And I didn't know what 
kind of like a, a gold mine it was when we first stumbled upon oh, it. Oh man. But it's like it's like a two blocks from downtown Franklin, but it's tucked away just where there's not like too much uh, traffic. It's right by all the schools. You know, we've got 30 parking spots just for that location. Yeah, so it's, it's great. It, there were a lot of like l- lucky factors that I wasn't really like looking for and ended up being grateful for down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Every time we go down there, uh, my kids tend to ask like, when are we moving to downtown Franklin? I'm like, <laughs> Bitches, these houses cost like a million dollars. It's not a cheap place to live. Not at all. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's like ranked one of the top 10 downtowns in the country or something like that. Yeah. It's know? awesome, man. It's one of the reasons when we moved here from, uh, from Knoxville, I think our real estate agent, um, really, well, when we were considering the move, I think it's one of the places our real estate agent said, Hey, you, why don't you go down and have dinner at the red pony? I think that's what she said. I think that might've been one of our first dinners. And, and for you guys that aren't from the area, it's just a kind of a mom and pop. There's one guy that owns a couple of restaurants down there and it's a steakhouse, kind of a steakhouse. Um, but it's just such a quaint environment down there. And we just <clears throat> instantly fell in love with that area. Um, so, but I first, when you were opening the gym, you were posting some videos and I, so I don't even know how we became friends on Facebook, but I was watching those videos. Mm-hmm. You showed how you, you did the judo kind of platform or the, yeah, your, the, the, the foam underlay underneath the mats. Yeah. Which is fucking fantastic, especially at your place, man. Cause you got some beasts in there that can pick people up and <laughs> put them on their heads. And, uh, that, that, that surface makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were posting all kinds of stuff at that time, which I, I you need to do that again. <laughs> I, I am trying to get back to it. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. You do some of those things when you first start out and you have like more time than, than like, um, than business. And yeah. then when you get more business than time, you, you stop doing some of those good things. And so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working on it. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, um, for the folks that don't know who you are, um, where you start, where you're from, where you grew up. Just, just the basic stuff and how, how you got involved in jiu-jitsu, if that, or even sure. even your first martial art you started in. How, how did this whole journey start for you, basically? Sure. So I, I was born in Dallas, Texas, and when when I was young, my family started like uh, traveling around the world. My dad was in medical school, so we ended up traveling to a few different countries and like living uh, outside the U.S. quite a bit. And I always remember my dad talking to us about like, you know, martial arts and, and, and that kind of thing. He and my mom did Taekwondo when they were younger and that's actually how they met. Oh, no way. Yeah. And then we didn't have a TV and we were like growing up, you know, outside the country and stuff. So, so my dad would like, you know, we'd tell stories and that kind of thing. And, uh, one of the things that he always talked about was martial arts and it just kind of fascinated us. And he grew up on like Steven Seagal movies and, you know, yeah. the, the Aikido and all that stuff. When we were seven, we were living in London and we took some Kung Fu classes for a few months. And that was like the shit, you know, I, I, I loved it and it was, it was really cool. So that was my first, first exposure to martial arts. And then fast forward you know, five or six years, we traveled kind of all over the States and we ended up being uh, back in, uh, in Kentucky. And uh, that's where we settled down as my dad was going through his residency. And in Kentucky, there was a, uh, there was a Hoist Gracie gym uh, about 45 minutes from where we lived. And, and did you know what jujitsu was at that time? I didn't. My only exposure, we were, we were in a hotel room watching like a preview for some UFC fights. And I saw these like two shirtless dudes in shorts and in a cage, like grappling with each other. And, and the commentator, it was probably Joe Rogan. He was like, and this guy's Brazilian jujitsu is really good. And so in my mind, jujitsu was all like, 
um, you know, for pansies that were in a sport. And I was like, I want to, you know, like learn how to be lethal on the streets. So right, I, right. I, I was thinking like Bruce Lee and, you know, Jackie Chan, I really wanted to learn Kung Fu again. And I thought jujitsu was just this kind of like, you know, kids sport or whatnot. Right, right, right. Well, there ended up being a Hoist Gracie gym uh, about 45 minutes from where we lived. One of my dad's patients told him about it. And so he sent us up there to try to try like an intro trial. And when you say us, who was that? You, uh, us, you and your brothers? Or? So at the time, it was my, my older brother and my younger sister and myself. Okay. And so the three of us went up to try this uh, this uh, jiu-jitsu class when I was 15 years old. And the it was a brown belt at the time that, was, that ran the gym. He showed us like uh, the trap and roll escape and, you know, just a couple other super basic things. But it's like magic when you first see it for the first time. You're like, oh, this is amazing. Well, or, or did you feel that way? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. Um, so he he had me get on the mount on my sister, and I never like wrestled with my sister. Oh before. god! So it was I was 15. You know, you're in that awkward age, and I got on top of my sister, and then he the coach practiced with my brother, and I had to practice with my sister, and I was like, I hate this. I never want to do it again. That's hilarious. We learned the moves, and then he shows us the schedule, and there was like these jiu no classes um, on the opposite nights of the jiu-jitsu classes. So I was like, oh, I want to come to those. And my brother and sister wanted to try the jiu-jitsu. And my dad talked me into trying it for just like a little bit. Try the jiu-jitsu classes and, and see. And uh, after a few months, you know, we were going. It's still cool when you're 15. You're like learning ninja shit, you know. So it's yeah. still cool. But I, I remember like hating it a little less and a little less. And then after a couple months, it was like, all right, this is pretty cool. And then, you know, a few months and I was just hooked. Oh, that's interesting. So wait, did you go to the jiu-jitsu classes at all? Or did your dad say that this is too big of a drive for us to do it on the days off? So it was only jiu-jitsu. So it started being only jiu-jitsu. I think, okay, okay. I think we I, started like twice a week. I meant Jeet Kune Do. The Jeet Kune. So, so you just did the jiu-jitsu at that gym? I just did the jiu-jitsu okay. uh, for the first few months. Okay. And then, uh, so I was 15 at the time. And as soon as I turned 16 and I got my my, my, life, my permit, <laughs> the first place I drove was, was jiu-jitsu. Okay. And uh, so I ended up later down the road, I, w- I went like five days a week or six days a week. So I did, I did the jujitsu. I did the judo classes that they started up. Oh, okay. Um, I was going to, we were going to, I wanted to ask you about that, about so where your judo came from. That's where I started judo. Like the month that I started training jujitsu at that gym, they added some judo classes. And so I started the judo and that was really my shit. Like I loved that. Right. And then I also did some uh, Kali and Eskrima for about three years there, the stick and knife fighting. Yep. And then I did the Jeet Kune Do for about three years. I have to skip around a little bit. Sure. What is it about the judo? And because I'm diving into this like judo versus jujitsu, the different approaches. Mm-hmm. Even when I was teaching class, we were talking about why the throws are so much more important in judo and why, you know, back exposure, which we don't like to do in jujitsu. Why is it so important in judo? So I really love the dichotomy or I shouldn't say dichotomy, but the differences in the uh, basically of the rule sets. Mm-hmm. But there is an inherent aggressive nature of judo, I think because of the time limit, mm-hmm. I think because of a number of different things. What was it about judo that you just loved? Was it the, the dynamic throws or was it the contact? When I was, you know, 15, 16, I was just learning it. It was the throws. I really loved okay. just, you know, picking someone up and hitting them with yeah. the planet. But like now looking at it, I feel like, you know, the judo and the wrestling and the jiu-jitsu all kind of fused together. You've got to know all of it. Sure, sure. And I... I came from like just a judo background and, and the jiu-jitsu gym that I started at was really shitty gym. Like, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later maybe, but it was like, it was not a top level gym. Right. So when I started cross training with the pedago guys and like actual high level jiu-jitsu, 
I had never been like exposed to wrestling before. So I would stand up like a beanpole and get like single leg and double leg because I, w- <laughs> I was expecting like to lock up judo grips, you know, <laughs> and I would just stand up like I was on stilts and just get single leg for days. Right. So you got to know it all. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I imagine if you did a case study of jujitsu matches, you would find there's probably more wrestling takedowns than, than judo takedowns sure, per se. Sure. But it's it's all like so important to know the foot sweeps and the hip tosses yeah, and the single legs and the front headlock and all of it. Yeah, and I, I look at it from, um, you know, tra- if you're, I think there's a difference in training. If you're training children, just taking it, because I always like it, when we would get these problems in physics classes or mm-hmm. these complicated problems, I'm like, wait, 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 stop it. What would this be on a slower scale? Like we're looking at, how, let me apply this question to a feather hmm. and then it makes more sense. And so a lot of times I've found, at least in training, how does this apply to children? And I think if you're trying to train a child to be well-rounded, yes, you show them everything. Mm-hmm. But let's just say I have a child, I want to make him a champion. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to teach him wrestling takedowns. Yeah. Because I'd rather have him have neck exposure than back exposure. Yeah. I'd re- and it takes a long time to learn those. In my opinion, most judo throws take a long commitment to get down. Most yeah. of them. Um but goddamn, grabbing a leg and throwing a person down on the ground seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. So I think that might be part of it too, because jujitsu, it's it's very high risk to do some of those takedowns that we know in judo. For sure. Where wrestling is more forgiving if you fuck up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that might be specific to the individual takedown or whatnot. Yeah, you know, you see true. you see a lot of wrestlers come in and give up their necks pretty easily when they shoot for it's, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um yeah. but yeah, I I that's an interesting way of approaching it, thinking about like teaching a kid and how to break it down like that. Yeah, because I think that might be why so many, we do see so many just wrestling, simple, safer takedowns mm-hmm. um, when you're saying ju- judo versus wrestling. You know, if you somehow, if we could, man, I wish there was a, a data composite mm-hmm. somewhere where we actually could see those numbers, but my instinct is exactly the same. You go to an IBJJF tournament, you're going to see a lot more wrestling type takedowns and you are judo type takedowns on for average. sure yeah for sure but then you know you look at how how effective a foot sweep or or a, you know a well-timed uchimata or something uh, like that is or or adolfo Vieira's drop sionagi you know yeah. and like there's that's kind of the litmus test for anything whether it works or not is if you see it in a competition and if you can see those guys pull it off at the high level yeah, we all probably learned that shitty Osotogari, you know, like when you first start, and then no one, no one ever hits that ever in a competition. Not unless they are eleven years old. No, I yeah. saw you hit one. No, 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 no. At because the you, game. you hit yours different though. I did a. Um, you almost shoot like a double leg to the outside with a trip. It's like crazy. I did like a driving Osotogari. Was yes. that the tournament here yes. in Nashville? Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know where it was, but I just saw the video like. And I had to show people because I'm like, this is the only one I've ever seen anybody, <laughs> um, anybody ever really pull off that wasn't in the kids' division. Because mm-hmm. sometimes kids can just manipulate one another and they yeah. get it, right? Yeah. But in the adult division, you don't see it that often. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I think what I what I saw a lot was you'd see all the kids trying to osulagari each other by just like sticking their leg out and trying to wrap it around the other's <laughs> leg. And they do that dance until one of the kids figures out a single leg and then they just like yeah. start grabbing that leg. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. So how did, um? so did you, start competing before you started cross training with Pettigo or I, I know you mentioned that you were in the Gracie competitions before I did and I, I was uh I was a purple belt before actually I was a blue belt I was right before I got my purple belt I started competing and the gym that I was at was very like anti-competition you know like uh, it's self-defense only and, and so on and so forth and and to be fair there there's uh 
there's some truth to like this self-defense approach to jiu-jitsu and there's a lot of like the benefits of, of self-defense and that kind of thing in, in grappling. But I've found that in general, the gyms that focus only on, on like quote self-defense and ignore the competition aspect or, or talk badly about the competition aspect, they're just soft gyms, you know, and yeah. they just like, they just don't want to train hard and they, they tell people that they're only doing it for quote self-defense. But then they, they also are the gyms that rarely put the gloves on or rarely put it to the test, you know? Sure, sure. And I was in one of those gyms that was just kind of like a, a jujitsu island intentionally where they didn't cross train and they didn't want their students to compete or cross train because they didn't want to get called on their shit and see what a right. terrible gym they were. And so they would tell us, you know, we're, we're just kind of in it for self-defense. We don't really want to compete. And so there was a hundred or 200 students there. And I was one of like two or three that enjoyed to compete. So when I went to go do some of these local tournaments, there was a one called the bluegrass open up in Kentucky yeah. back in the day, yeah. Alio Sanaka. And then, um, uh, so like some Nagas and some, uh, back when the Fuji tournaments were called the Kozen fighters. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Kozen, oh, that's a cool Kozen, name. I, yeah. I don't remember that or yeah, I know it was Fuji, but I didn't know what they yeah, were. Yeah. So, okay. so back when those, some of those organizations and the American grappling federation was just starting out the AGF. So I did some of those local tournaments as a blue belt and then as a purple belt. And I absolutely got my ass handed to me like almost every time. Uh, and then through my purple belt years, I started competing a little more and a little more. I really enjoyed it, but I wouldn't be like anyone from my, my team or my gym competing. So I would, I would just like go drive eight hours and compete by myself and drive back and that kind of right, thing. Right, 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 And I got connected to some of the other people in the community. And then I would win these, like got to where I could win some of the Fujis and the AGFs and the local tournaments. And I kind of thought I was hot shit. And then, you know, and then you go back to the gym where no one competes. They're like, oh, you're the champ, you know? Yeah, yeah. But they would also, like, there was a stigma against the IBGF because... Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. The, like, my gym had a... The whole organization had a hardcore stigma against IBGF because that was supposedly where, like, the, the quote, the point fighters go. Oh, gotcha, so, gotcha, know, gotcha. Yep, no, yep, yep, yep. I get it. No one there wants to win by, you know, submission. They're not really tough in a real fight. They're just winning on points and thinking they're world champions. Well, the reality is Buchech is a fucking beast, and he's going to kick yeah. your ass in a street fight too, you know? Right. But there was this, like, mistaken stigma against the high-level tournaments as if it was all just, like, a, you know, a dirty sport. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I didn't do IBGF until after I got my brown belt. And okay. by this time, I had, I had met the Pedego guys, and I started cross-training with them. So my, my first IBGF tournament was as a brown belt, and I, I didn't do any of that through blue or purple belt. So when I got my brown belt, and then I started to try and jump in and compete like at the highest level, it's like, well, now you've got some catch-up to do because all these kids at AOJ have been training that way since they were white belts. Shit. You and know? how old were you at that time? You're above 18. I, oh, I was obviously. 23, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, okay, so you're in the adult division, the pinnacle of our sport. Yeah. Like, there's no playing around. Like, I even get a little agitated sometimes when people say, well, I'm a world champion. Mm, no, you're a master's world champion. Sure. Yeah. I, and, and I don't ever say that to anybody. Um, yeah. But in my mind, I'm like, there's a, there's a, there is a difference between the adult division and everything else. Sure. That is the division. The rest of us are just hanging around having a good time. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the division. Um, so you're in that division right now. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. The AOJ guys who are been training since they came out of the womb and <laughs> they were in a specific program with other training partners, their same age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's a lot that goes into that program oh, yeah. that they have oh, yeah. and I respect it. And, um, you know, um, and I know a lot about it because the number one kid in the nation is in my son's weight division. So <laughs> who, who is he? Cole Abate. Oh yeah. He's a beast. Yeah. Cole's a little Tasmanian devil. Yeah. He's amazing. They've been you training know? since he's three, I think, four or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, 
so so I know about the program. I, I get it. You know that they're they're good trained. So now you're you're with those guys now. Yeah, and it's a oh eye opener. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was. I mean, I I know what I'm against now, but at the time it was you know, it was going from you know taking second or third place at like a local Fuji and thinking, man, I did really well. To now I'm going to go compete at the Atlanta. Actually, my very first IBGF. I had done a Fuji in Kentucky the day before, or the weekend before, and okay. there were like 120 people. I think there were two other brown belts, and I was like, you know, we had a good turnout there. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did the Atlanta Open. What year was that in? Do you remember? It was about three years ago. Okay, so not not too long ago, maybe 2017, 2016. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. So I had to be there because I'm, most likely, I'm, I'm, yeah, have very rarely missed any of those. Yeah. So yeah. we go down to the Atlanta open the next weekend and this was right before I joined the PSF team, but they were all down there with me because you know my team wasn't. And so I walk in and there are 3000 people competing. They, they cap, they capped it off at 3000 people. And, and you know, the weekend before was a packed 120 or something. So there's 3000 people. There are more brown belts there than there were competitors in the Fuji kids and adults and everything combined. Right, right. And so I'm like, what in the actual fuck? Like, this is what an actual small IBGF looks like. This isn't pans or worlds or anything. Yeah, it's an open tournament. It's an open tournament. Yeah. Atlanta open. And then I go to compete and, uh, I was brown belt. That was back when I was doing the lightweight division. So I step on the mat to compete and right next to me in the mat next to me is Keenan Cornelius competing. And like now, you and I walk into anybody IBGF, and it's not a big deal. You see Kyotera and you know all these guys walking around. But back then, oh, it's, it's, you know, I went from 120 people at a Fuji to 3,000 at a you know at an Atlanta Open, and Keenan Cornelius is right next to me. And it just kind of like I was like, okay, this is the big leagues. Like yeah. I should I should have been doing these all along. Right, right, right. And then that was kind of the the beginning of those. Okay, that's awesome, man. That that's that's a cool story. That's it's awesome that and how'd you do at that tournament? I took third in my weight and then I took third in the open weight and I, I dislocated my rib, um, which has been like one of my recurring injuries. And so I had to pull out of the open weight and take third place. Okay. So but better you, better than I thought I would at my first one. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that part of that partial success, um I mean, it's always a test, you know, you don't have success. What's that kind of, what kind, what kind of fight is in that dog? Do they get back in there? Mm -hmm. But there's something to be said for just a little taste of success to keep you going. Cause we're all human. Mm -hmm. um, and to think that we're some unbreakable spirit that just will continue to compete and continue to pursue greatness. Um, that's kind of unrealistic. We all, we need little bits of success here and there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and to have that at that, that first step that had to be incredibly encouraging. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you team up with the Pettigo guys at that point? So I had gone, uh, about my first eight years I had spent training with, uh, my first team Okay. and there were, there were two different gyms, kind of like sister gyms and I, okay. and I popped back and forth between the two, like, uh, coaching and teaching. Uh, we mentioned like I started jiu-jitsu when I was 15 mm -hmm. and then when I was 18 I I quit my my part-time job and I started coaching jiu-jitsu full-time oh so you did you know at that time that this is what I want to do for my life I did I did I, I guess I'm I'm taking the story out of order and maybe I should be a little uh, a little clearer about it I started when I was 15 we mentioned how like I, I hated jiu-jitsu and I didn't yeah, like it yeah. and then a few months in I was really like awkward with my body and the, it I actually wasn't like a natural learner it took me about a year to find my jiu-jitsu body okay and by that time, I, I absolutely loved it, though. And I distinctly remember the first time I ever tapped someone out was with a triangle choke. Maybe that's why it's like resonated with me. But <laughs> there was um, there was this uh, blue belt I was rolling with, and I was like a 
you know, white, I'd been a white belt for a few months and he put his arm. Do you remember that old stack pass? That oh yeah. Yeah. Seen? Old. So that oh, they, yeah. they taught Jason Delucia. So that's why he passed that <laughs> way. I swear to God, that's my conspiracy on that. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. The old stack pass. Oh yeah. So yeah. He, he puts his arm inside, you know, for the old hoist Gracie stack pass. And it, it dawned on me that like, he's putting himself in a triangle choke and I locked it up and he tapped. And I, I just remember that being my first ever aha moment in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And so by that time, I really enjoyed it. I started doing the judo. And then 16, 17 years old, about about when I was uh, 17, I started like driving and whatnot. I came, started driving myself to jiu-jitsu four or five days a week. I got a job as a, as a line cook. So that was the only, the only like... Um, real job I guess I've had outside of jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. I uh, was homeschooled so I would get up at 4:45 in the morning and I would drive to this uh, this town like uh, on the other side of jiu-jitsu and I would cook just you know eggs and bacon like a local yeah. ca- local cafe you know I cook from like 5:30 in the morning until about one and then I'd get off and my sister was waitressing at the same place so we'd both get off and we'd drive home we'd shower and grab our geese and drive 45 minutes to oh, the gee, jiu-jitsu that's gym. awesome and then we train for like four hours and then drive back and then do it again. So that was, uh, it was exhausting, but I loved it. And then I remember when I started being able to coach the kids' classes, I walked in and quit the other job. And I, oh, I just, that's great. I would bring my uh, homework to the Jiu Jitsu Academy because I was homeschooled. So I'd bring my homework and I'd sit down by the mats in the morning and I would like start doing my homework. And if one of the coaches was teaching a private lesson, I would jump in and like take notes and audit the lesson. So I was getting like a bunch of free private lessons every day. Yeah. And then I would coach the kids classes and then, um, and then train in the adult class. And I did that, you know, every weekday and, uh, through, through like 17, 18 and then ended up dropping out of high school so I could pursue teaching full time. Cause I was, you know, had like some requirements to graduate that I wasn't crazy about and didn't think, didn't think they'd really help me, <laughs> help me with my chosen career. You know, like my, my mom wanted me to do like trigonometry and just shit that I would never use. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, you know what? No. Yeah. And I just dropped out and, and, uh, um, ended up coaching jiu-jitsu and then my family moved away around that time. And so I, I got an apartment within walking distance of the gym and, wow. um, back at that time, I think my rent was like 500 bucks a month, you know, and I was making just about that coaching lessons or coaching kids classes. So I, I slept on the floor. I ate a bunch of oatmeal and bananas that first year. Yeah. And I was like, walked back and forth to the jiu-jitsu gym and did that for until I slowly built up like some, some more private lessons. And I got my purple belt around that time. And so that was kind of how I, how I started doing jujitsu full time, I guess when I was younger. And then through, through my purple belt years was when I started competing a little more and I, I met the pedagogue guys and I got like a little more connected and started traveling a lot. Okay. Did you meet them at a tournament? Just, I remember just knowing who they were on Facebook gotcha, um, gotcha. because they were about 30 minutes, 30 minutes North of my gym. Okay. Um, well, I said there were two sister gyms. I, I lived by the one in Kentucky and then there was another one that was like an hour North in Illinois. Okay. And that's where the pedagogue guys are pretty close to because our headquarters is in Southern Illinois. So they were like they were like an hour and a half from where I lived, like thirty minutes from one of the gyms I was coaching at, and I just kind of like heard people say there was this group of like small hardcore guys that competed a lot, you know, or pretty close, and Heath kept on tagging everyone in Facebook posts back then and being like, hey, you know, we're having an open mat, everyone's welcome, and he just tag a cool. bunch of people. Yeah, and he, seem, he seems like a very um, seems like a very smart guy, seems like a very personal guy, and and the one thing that uh, we were talking earlier about coaches and. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there's some creeps out there. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems pretty genuine. He's very genuine, yeah. Yeah. 
And so it was just that genuine approach of just like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, tag all the local guys in my posts and, you know, everyone's welcome. And, and finally I was just like, you know what, I'll just go up and cross train with them. Yeah. And this was, how does your gym feel about that? Uh, my, my coach didn't, I don't remember anything against the first time I went, but he was very hostile to like questioning with him in the future. So that's one of the reasons uh, we ended up breaking off. Okay. Okay. So the first time I was, I was a purple belt and I, I think I was probably like a three stripe purple belt or whatever. I'd been a purple belt for a couple of years and I went up and I met, um, Heath and there was just like, I don't know, four or five people. And it was in one of the first locations, like right, uh, right by the, the Hardys or something in um in Mount Vernon, and it was just like a, a roll up garage door and some mats on this like shitty. You is this know, the one that was next to the chip factory? Maybe. Yeah. I'm trying to. Have you been there before? No, no, no. I've just, uh, dude, Jackson, dude. If if Andrew is on like any type of like interview, he just did an interview with Mikey Miss Messi. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, can't tell you how many times he's watched the Daisy Fresh thing. Really? Oh, dude. He, Jackson is he's not a fanboy like yeah. he's not somebody like he loves Lucas Valente man yeah. dude, he loves Lucas and we were there at Pans I'm like dude I I just talk you come over and take a picture with him would not do it so he's really? not a fanboy in that part but he almost was in tears when Lucas got his guard passed oh man <laughs> wow <laughs> and he's like dad no no <laughs> so I mean he knows the sport he yeah. knows the people and, um, so we watched, you know, we heard the story about the chip factory, you know, um, I've told him, I'm like, dude, I'll drive you up. If you really want to go Maybe. to Daisy Fresh and train, I'll drive you up there. And he's like, no, 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 no. But I've also offered this about Robert Deagle yeah. before, um, he moved. Cause mm -hmm. now I know he's moving right now to, um, Singapore, I think. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, we can go like your dad's a doctor. Like we have money, <laughs> you know? And if you want to train, but, but he's yeah. just not like on that but so we know about the chip factory and the gotcha. videos and yeah so he's, yeah well that, that's so cool man we'll have to send jackson up for a week or something if he wants to you know what sure. i have like i can go on about stories about friends that i have my buddy who just opened it he's actually the guy that's above me uh primo bella rosa primo i know you're listening buddy i love you miss you um he opened up his new gym up in um uh, vermont and okay. uh I, I told him dude you want to do some striking primo he's a 10 times better than I, he will teach you things I can't teach you. I can't do. Yeah. And, uh, he's just, he doesn't, not his yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. just doesn't want to travel right now. Hey, so, man, but yeah, I mean, he eventually will, but yeah, he would love to go up to Mount Vernon and he, cause he wants to know if he can hack it. Yeah. He's like, I want to know if I could like, he's like, I think I could like, cause he thinks about Andrew being in that cold little thing. He's like, yeah, I think I could do that. I wonder how long I could do that. Like, <laughs> that's okay, awesome. Man, that, man. That's cool, man. You know, well, whatever. About once a month, uh, we take, we take a crew of like our guys from triangle and, and drive up to headquarters just so they can train with, you know, they can meet Heath and get exposed to that. Training. Sure. 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 So about once a month, we'll take some guys up just for like a Sunday open mat and come back and Jack's have to come with us sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. He would, he would absolutely love uh, that. That's awesome. So you start cross training with these guys. Yeah. And, and, and it might, are you immediately attracted to their form, their style of training? No. So, oh, okay. so what happened was I, I met Andrew and okay. I didn't know who he was, uh, but I met Andrew and, uh, he had just gotten his blue belt, like the, the, the week I met him or the month I met him or something. And I think he, he'd won Panzer in the world's a white belt. And, uh, so he goes in there and I have this massive chip on my shoulder of like, I'm a Gracie coach and like, you know, like, um, the, no hate at all for anything Gracie related, but the, the, the particular um, Gracie family member that I was under 
is not a um, not a very good leader or doesn't have good jiu-jitsu or so on. Um, you can clip that part out if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm you. You say you say the way we don't. We, we talked about it before. We don't restrict. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. No. So said, yeah. Um. So I had a massive chip on my shoulder about like who I was under and the kind of coach that I thought sure, I was. Sure. And then I walk in and Andrew's like in this dirty gi in this shitty little like garage <laughs> training facility, and he taps me. I'm not even like shitting you. He tapped me like 20 times in a five minute round. And I'm like, you know, about to get my brown belt, I feel like, and he's like a new blue belt and all the, all the ego things that jiu-jitsu is supposed to rip out of you. Yeah. And the, the one thing in particular is I couldn't put him in my guard. Like if my life had literally depended on it, I couldn't have closed my guard around him. He just X passed me over and over. And yeah. I'd never really seen that before. And I was like, hey, have you drilled that a lot? And he said, uh, kind of offhandedly, he was like, I'll, I'll bet I've drilled that move a hundred thousand times. And it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> I was like, wow. It probably like, wasn't exaggerating. It probably wasn't exaggerating a bit. And I just remember him like arming Ezekiel me, mounted triangle me, arm barring me, like having his way with me and blowing past my guard with this X-Pass that he'd done a hundred thousand times. And so I, I went back and I told my coach about it, you know, and he was, he filled my ear with like, yeah, well, it's because they're like training for the sport and in, in a fight, if there were punches, it'd be different, you know? And I was like, I don't know, man, I'm getting tapped out a whole lot, you know? <laughs> but he's got all these excuses why it's yeah. not real jujitsu. And I went back like a couple more times and, and didn't really think much of it until like a, a year later and, or a few months later. And I remember, I think I'd lost another local tournament and I just didn't know what to do. Like... I didn't know what X guard was. I didn't know what daily Hiva was. Like I was a purple belt, but all I knew were these like shitty self-defense moves and gun disarms and stuff. And like most, most of it would, that was not very realistic. Right. And Andrew asked me one time, how do you pass the guard? And, and I said, I don't know. I just get passed. Like our training was very unsystemized. There was no, uh, like you do really? this path. Okay. It was so pathetic. Like it was a really low level kind of training. And so I was a purple belt, but I didn't know like even these basic guards and passes that Andrew was like destroying me with. So after a few months, I think I had lost another tournament and then I texted Andrew and I was like, Hey, what do you charge for privates? And he, he said 20 bucks an hour <laughs> and 20 so, bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour. So he'd, oh, won, he was also a blue belt at the time. Yeah. He, he'd won, okay, he'd, okay, he okay. just won. He just double golded at worlds at, at blue belt. Right. Um, so he was now a three time world champion and he was like, yeah, 20 bucks an hour. And so I was like, listen, I'm so busy coaching and stuff. I don't know if I can make it to any of y'all's evening classes, but I'll come up like during the daytime and get a private. Right. And I also didn't want to like get my ass kicked. So I was kind of scared, you know? Sure, sure, sure. So I'd go up there and he showed me like, you know, Barambolo and X-Pass and knee slices, all this like basic stuff that I had never seen before. And I would come back and try to show my coach and he would be like, yeah, you don't need to focus on that. You need to do like punch block stage three and gun disarms and stuff. And I was like, all right, man. (laughs) And so I was very torn because it's like that whole, we were talking before the podcast about like religious upbringings and how even if your beliefs change down the road, it's hard to like tear yourself from what you grew sure, up with. Absolutely. It was the same thing with jujitsu. You know, when your coach has been coaching you since you were 15 is telling you that, that this is wrong. It's hard to think differently, even though you know, like, you know, that that's not the case. Yeah. So it, it took a while for me to kind of like separate the two in my head, but Andrew was showing me all this amazing stuff. And for about a year, I just did privates with him. And like one private a week. And then I found another buddy of mine that from the same like gym that I was at that also liked to compete. And we started doing the privates together. And then it got fun because I wasn't going up by myself and getting my ass kicked. Yeah, yeah. And we did that for for about a year, just one private every Wednesday at noon for 20 bucks an hour. (laughs) Wow. And then Andrew was like, listen, you guys, you know, want to compete. You should come once a week. Just come to Sunday open mats. And again, it took like a year before I, I 
talked up the courage to do it because I knew I was going to get my ass kicked. Sure, sure. And then I went to an open mat and an open mat at, at Pedigo, even back then, like three years ago, is just like at Atos. Like every other person you roll with is a fucking world champion. It's incredible. Yeah. And I. And do, do they structure their open mat like you? And I haven't explained this, but actually, maybe I have explained this on a prior podcast. How do you, do they have their open mat structure the way you have your open mat? Is that where you got that structure yes, from? Yes. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I try to replicate in the triangle training room, you know, as close to the way the training is in the PSF room as possible. Okay. And so, you know, it was an awesome open mat. There's probably 30 people there, pans and world champions everywhere you turn. And I got my ass kicked, but I really, really had fun. And there was this yeah. little part of me that was like, you know what? Maybe you are tough enough. You can hack this. Even yeah. if you, you just keep getting tapped and coming back. Yeah. And so I started coming on Sundays and then I got a little more pushback from my coach. Like, Hey, you shouldn't do this. You should put your focus on yada, yada, yada. And then, um, then I started switching one night a week to Pedigo and, you know, so it slowly started transforming. And I noticed that like in, in a few months of, of training in the Pedigo room, my jujitsu got so much better and I started winning you know, a little more at the tournaments and stuff. And uh, I didn't realize it at that point, but like it was already kind of becoming my team because there wasn't a lot, a lot of like team atmosphere at the other gym. Right. You know, it, it was more like a business transaction and a kind of like, you know, you do your thing and, and, uh, um, you know, it, it wasn't yeah. like what, what you and I look for. Yeah. So would you say it was, um, I know the, I think I know the answer to this. So it wasn't just the, it wasn't just a knowledge thing. It mm-hmm. was also the way that they were training. It was the way they were training, and it was the it was the attitude of the people in the training room. You know, like I'd I'd walk in and it felt like a team and a family. Mm. And I trained between the private lessons and between the open mats, and and then switching my evenings over there too. I probably trained for for a year and a half in the pedigree room before I joined officially. And Heath never asked me for a goddamn dime. Like mm. he he never asked me to switch over. He never asked me to leave my team. Never asked me for like tuition. He was just like, yeah, man, come train and get better. Is he, what does he do? Because, okay, so to what that sounds like to me from, what does he do for a living? No one's sure. <laughs> okay, um, because, so that's what we call, this is what we call long-term investment. Yeah. And there's a lot of long-term investments that don't pay off, but the yeah. few that do are incredible well. And it doesn't necessarily pay off as a student. Yeah. It may pay off as 20 other students from that person. Yeah. And I don't think that the majority of gym owners are savvy to that unless they have other business experience. Yeah. So he's a bit of an enigma. Heath, uh, I mean, I, I say nobody knows. Um, he... When I met him, he was working like uh, midnights, like unloading trucks and stuff so that he could keep the lights on at the gym. Really? Okay. See, he seems like somebody to me that maybe has some investments around. Because just the the simple fact of doing that is a mindset that you don't have from the typical gym owner. Heath is just someone who cares so much about his athletes that he'll do what he needs to in his personal life to make sure that they have a place to train. Okay, like probably because he is a fighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he Heath would be an interesting guy to have on the podcast. He's got a hell of a story. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's incredibly. He's well. He seems very knowledgeable in regards to people's games, mm-hmm. his strategies. Mm-hmm. I've heard him talk on some of the, the documentaries. I've heard him talk to um, Michael Suarez. Is his name? Uh, the one of the guys from Flow Grappling. Michael Sears. Sears. Yeah. Sears. Michael Sears. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and just his his base knowledge mm-hmm. is really, really, really. Into, I mean, he he knows the fighters. He knows styles. He's a, he seems like he's a, a good general. He, he's an awesome general, and and Heath. People don't understand that a lot of the technicality comes from Andrew 
like Andrew is, is the is the technician and the guy that understands you know people's games and like like Heath is masterful at jiu-jitsu too but what Heath is the best at is is knowing his troops he knows what to say to you he knows mm-hmm. he knows he knows the guys Your motivation that, yeah he knows the guys that need to hear listen you know you fucking pussy get up and do it and he knows the guys that need to hear listen man I love you you can do this you know like like a lot of guys don't understand how to motivate people and how different people need to hear it, different it, things it's, it's what we call in business an EQ yeah. like an emotional intelligence yeah he must have a very high EQ he has a high EQ and he also you know he leads by example so well that like we know we know that he'd do anything for us because we've seen him do it. We've seen him like sure. give the shirt off his back for someone on the team or get new geese for himself and give them to guys that can't afford them. That's like, awesome. That's you know, awesome. When when we went through this phase where like I wasn't on the team yet, they would not only did he not ask me for tuition or, or you know to switch or whatever, but he would also when we went down like to that first Atlanta open, I wasn't signed up for their team. I wasn't giving them team points or whatever, but they let me sleep on their hotel room and they coached me and they were like just as happy for me when I won as they were for That's their cool. guys. And like, cool. it kind of made me feel like family. Yeah. And so then around this whole time, I was uh, getting come down to Nashville and open the gym. And so, Oh, so you already had that. That was one of the things I know we're supposed to talk about competition prep. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to that. Sure. Um, but this is way too interesting to skip over. Cause I think it, it probably leads into a lot of things. We'll talk about competition prep. So you already had that in your mind before being officially with their team. Yes. I was already going to come to Nashville and I was actually going to open a gym under my old affiliation. Oh, okay. And so I was, I had actually already found this building that we're in before I joined Pedigo. Get um, out of here. So okay. I, I, had, I was looking around Nashville for months. I found Franklin, I found the building and I was, you know, about to negotiate the lease and like figure that out when everything kind of reached ahead with uh, the Pedigo training and wanting to focus on competition. And I had a lot of internal conflict because you know, like you're in a bad relationship with a girl, you know, and you know, you need to break up, but you don't want to do it. And yeah. I was kind of at that point with my old team and there was a lot of friction on both sides, you know, definitely things I could have done better too. But at the end of the day, it was just kind of time to break ties and it, it took me a lot longer to do it than I should have. And when I, when I decided that I needed to, to move out kind of on my own, I, I didn't even really have the thought in my head that I was going to switch to Pedigo. But after I left the other affiliation, it was like instantly apparent who was my team and who was my family. They'd already been there for me for like a you know year, year and a half. So I just asked Heath if I could switch over. We got it done, and then I already, you know, had already kind of planned everything that I was going to do with with Triangle Academy, but I was also going to Europe to to teach and train over there for uh, for a few weeks. Oh, that's cool. So the like the week that I found the building and decided to to lease that building, I flew to uh, flew to London and I did the um, the German Nationals and the British National IBGF tournaments. Okay. And then I coached around, uh, taught a bunch of seminars in Germany and, and over over there. And uh, so spent like a month over there. And at the same time, I was like negotiating the lease via email and like trying to work everything out. So it was it was really stressful. I had like a month long like stress migraine. But oh, I got God. like, I knew that once I settled down with the gym, I wouldn't be able to travel as much. So I got like a, a, a whole month of like, you know, traveling and teaching and competing and just like all the fun shit that we love to do. And I did that while I was finalizing everything. And then when I moved back uh, or flew back, I moved straight to, to Franklin and opened the gym. Okay. Okay. And uh, well, I moved straight down and like finished renovating the building and whatnot. And then we opened Triangle on October 1st of 2018. Yeah. And you've been doing great since then. Thanks. Thanks. I mean, I like, like I said, there's a physician that um, I know I work with that was training with you. 
Um, you got a, an amazing reputation in the in the in the area. Um, you can't say enough good things about the gym. I appreciate that. Yeah, or the people that are associated with your gym. And so, and you guys down in, in Spring Hill with Reggie, didn't you guys start about the same month that we did? It might have been. It's very confusing in that situation because he because he had yeah God that whole timeline for me because mm-hmm. I was moving at that time too. Oh wow! That's why luckily you know his gym is literally five maybe eight minutes away from here. Okay. Yeah, on a bad day, ten minutes. So I'd happen to move right where he was moving, opening up. So it might have been around all around the same time. Were you also moving from Knoxville or were you in this area already? No, I was already in this area. Okay. Yeah. So I was already in this area, had made some ties with guys in Franklin. Uh, Reggie was teaching, it was going into partnership with Mike in Murfreesboro. Mm -hmm. That was too long of a drive for us. And so it kind of was great when he came back to the area. Nice. I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, so it's good. Not I had any problems with the place I was at. I had good friends there, good training partners. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just a certain bond with uh, with Reggie, with my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they would beg me to drive them to Murfreesboro. Wow. Yeah, like beg. And I'm like, guys, we we're not going to make that drive. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was tough. So it was amazing when it came. But I think it was about the same time because we just uh, we just did our two year anniversary. Oh, congrats! Just, yeah, yeah, just during the last belt promotion. Okay, that was our two year anniversary. Okay, so. yeah. So did you receive your brown belt from Heath? I did not. I I got my brown belt from my from my old organization. Okay. So that was um, uh, actually about five years ago. And I'm I don't tell people that a lot because you know I, I get some weird looks or people think I'm like sandbagging or whatnot when I tell them I've been a brown belt for five years. But the, the reason for that is like my first, you know, two years of my brown belt or whatnot, I was still under the old organization and, and I, again, training with Andrew, like I couldn't show you what X card was or what what knee slice was. So like I, I wore a brown belt, but I wasn't really like at that level at all. And the white belts in the pedagogy room would just curb stomp me. So I had to like put in a lot of extra work and try to like catch up. And, and I feel like now I'm, you know more comfortable with that rank but but when you get you know when you get like a rank you can't go backwards no no and i and i always say like when you receive a rank if you're a normal person you usually feel like you don't deserve it Mm -hmm. and you spend a majority of that rank time proving to yourself that you do deserve Mm -hmm. it the criteria what you deserve is very personal to the professor that you're under Mm -hmm. heath is going to have a different set of criteria for you than your old professor Mm -hmm. if i was at one place it might be something where and I think it's so, it's, it, you know, I was, we were recently on vacation. We took a little trip, um, a little camping trip with the family. And I always try to take a book when I go on a trip. And this time um, it was the Hakakura, which I'd read a long time ago. And it's essentially, it's a letter written because Jackson's inside. Like, what are you reading? That looks cool. It's, it's basically the way of the samurai. And okay, well, what, how did it come about? Well, this guy was a samurai. And he realized if you went up to the majority of samurai and asked them, what is it to be a samurai? None of them could really give you an answer. Hmm. And when you think about the commitment it would take to become a samurai, everything in your life is now geared towards war. Even the fact that you're learning things not for war, whether that be calligraphy, uh, flower arrangement, hanami, whether it was playing an instrument, it was still geared towards war because it was about your mentality. Yeah. These guys would kill themselves if they lost their leader. I mean, the, the the commitment is huge, but yet you would sit down and talk with these individuals. And according to this samurai, very few of them could would be able to adequately tell you what it was to be a samurai. Hmm. 
And so, you know, he thought that was mind blowing. Yeah. And I said, well, it's the same thing with a doctor. Go to a doctor, ask a doctor, what is it to be a doctor? He's like, what really? What is it to be a doctor? And took me off guard for a second. (laughs) (laughs) So I give him my definition. So we're driving home one night and I have the most amazing conversations in the car, driving home at night with my kids from jujitsu, specifically Jackson, because he's a little older than my other two. Yeah. And he said, you know what? I kind of realized that all black belts are the same. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I'm like, what do he, you mean? He didn't say that like the day you got your black belt, did he? No, no, no. no. It was actually, <laughs> might've been two. Yeah. <laughs> we led into that though. So it was like two, three weeks maybe before that. Okay. Or like a week before that. And and congrats, by the way, that's only oh, like thanks, a, a week, a week ago, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just... Yeah. So, so this actual conversation, it was pretty meaningful to me, yeah. not knowing, having any idea that that was around the corner. Yeah. Um, but thanks. Um, so I, I said to him, I said, uh, you know, well, a black belt is somebody that can teach and perform under stress, basic, intermediate and advanced moves. He's like, that's all it is. I thought it'd be more than that. Cause there's so many different levels. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, because you're a black belt doesn't mean you're a world champion. Let's yeah. make that distinction. Sure. And then I stopped and I said, that's about as ignorant as somebody writing one line in the book that I read last week. That book was thick because there's so much more to being a samurai. Yeah. The definition of a black belt is so much bigger than that. Yeah. And it really comes down to the person that you're representing. They might know that you have certain struggles in your life that you've overcome. Now it's time for your black. Mm-hmm. There's so many different things that go beyond the jujitsu. Yeah. Um, and it's different for different people with different disabilities, with different things in their life. And, so you can't pin it down because it's such a beautiful thing. It represents so many different things. Yeah. And, and so I think you probably respected more what his representation of a belt level was than, you know what I mean? Definitely. I felt like it was more in line with with my my own goals, you know, because yes. like the other thing was we actually used to have shirts on the pedigree team that said not all belts are created equal, you know, because, exa- because exactly what you just said. Love it. Love it. And there's a... Uh, you know, I, I would have the goal like, hey, I want to be, you know, the, you know, purple belt world champion or brown belt world champion. And then my coach would not only, not only not even care, but he wouldn't even know that was my goal. They just weren't connected with their, their students or their athletes. Got it, got it, got it, got it. And, you know, like Heath isn't going to let someone say, have, you know, 16 chances to win purple belt worlds. You know, there's some point where if you can't do it, it's on you, you know, but, <laughs> right. al- but also he knows that's your goal, you know, and he's going to, you know, he's going to make sure you have the support to achieve that within a reasonable amount of time and have a couple seasons to try and pull that off. Sure. So it's like, th- there's, there's, like you said, a, a spectrum of like, it, it's almost like a cross, what do they call it? A juxtaposition. Juxtaposition. Juxtaposition yes, yes, between, yes. between like universal standards that any say blue belt should be able to uphold and then also between like your own personal abilities and goals. Yeah. And and somewhere along that line, you know, the two meet and that's where, where your standard for your individual rank comes in. Yeah. And if it means anything from you, um, you know, I'm not the best competitor, but I've been around a lot and mm-hmm. I've trained with a lot of people all around this United States mm-hmm. and you are one of the top people I've ever trained with as far as your skill level, your explosiveness, your knowledge, you put it on the line. You, I mean, I consider you in my mind, black belt. And when you start competing as a black belt, you're going to tear it up. I really appreciate so that. It, but it, 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 but I know that doesn't mean shit because it has to be within your own heart. Well, you also you also can't like hold back until you feel like you're ready. That's why it's like right. out of it's out of your hands for yes. a reason. Because yeah. some people would stay like purple belts forever or whatnot. Yeah, I I imagine you know 
I, I imagine I, I don't have too much longer a brown belt, you know, and that's not to make like a, um, a bold statement or whatever, but you know, Heath and Andrew and I talk about that. We're pretty open about it. Yeah. Um, I imagine I have maybe like one more competition season at brown belt. And then at some point, if you can't win shit at that belt, it's on you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that, about competition. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, you know, I, I wait, first before we, I got one more question to ask you. Before yeah. that. So y- you seem to have kind of a different path because I think a lot of people that compete, it'd be interesting to ask somebody like Andrew or somebody like Mikey Musumesi or mm-hmm. some top level competitor, do you ever have the intent on opening up a school? Mm-hmm. And it, it almost doesn't seem, it almost might be like a default, like I love this so much and I can't compete, I guess I got to open up a school. Mm. But you were like, I like teaching, I'm going to open up a school mm-hmm. and I'm going to compete. That's that's a little different than most competitors. Yeah. I, I love teaching, you know, I, I've done it like that's been my job, how I put food on the table since I was, you know, 18. So like, I love teaching and, and I feel like I'm really good at it. And so many people are either like, they're either good at jujitsu and they suck at teaching or they're great teachers and they suck at jujitsu. I'm in that class right there. <laughs> I don't know. About, <laughs> I don't know about that, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's, you know, but yeah, I've always, yeah. And, and it's just funny because this is very similar. Reggie has, Professor Reggie has mm-hmm. said very, very similar to this, not exactly in those words, yeah. but very similar to that. Who are you? What are you? Yeah. The person that can teach and competes incredibly rare. You're in a very rare class. Well, and, and the third part of that is also being good at business. So like there's the uh, behind this, like running yeah. the gym and I'm, I'm maybe like, a little unusual in that I not not that I'm good at all three of those, but I really enjoy all three of those. I love to compete, I love to teach, and I love the business. You know, oh, okay. you get some guys that say, "Man, Most I, of them I hate it." Yeah, I hate the business. I just want to teach. There's stressful parts to it, but I love the business part, the challenge of it. So, enjoying all three of those parts and then trying to be good at all three of those parts, I, I felt like you know, hey, maybe like if I can succeed at being good at all three, the business, the competing, and the jujitsu. Uh, teaching that like I can offer something a lot of people can't offer yeah and I also traveled the world so much you know like like in the year that I was kind of like in there was a period where I was in flux between like the old gym and the pedago gym and saving money to open triangle I traveled the states and I traveled the world extensively and I had a notebook and I would write down every time I visited a gym I'd write down hey all these are all the things I like about this gym and these are all the things I don't like from like visited Hodger Gracie gym in London a bunch of times, you know, trained in, in, you know, all over the States, went to San Diego and saw, you know, um, not AOJ, but, uh, Jiu Jitsu university with Solo and John. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, So like all these gyms and I got a really good vision of what I didn't and what I did want my gym to be like. And, and then I had some friends that were like very helpful on the business side and I did a lot of research. So I had, I had like a clear vision of what I wanted and you reach a creative point. Like, I guess, you you've been training long enough there's got to be a few techniques that you do you know dr joe's way and there's like you know a little variation it's like kind of your your thing and you get that like creative um those creative juices flowing where when you you feel strongly enough about something you want to express it and that's how i felt about all the things that we do with triangle and so to be honest i should have moved into pedago for a year i should have moved in and slept on the mats for a year and spent a year fixing all the holes in my jiu-jitsu because it has been a challenge being four hours away from headquarters sure 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 and my jiu-jitsu has suffered a little bit but uh now now that the gym's two years old and we have an army of killers in there and andrew and bird are down there a lot helping me get you know trained and stuff they're back kind of back and forth between you know headquarters and here here a little bit it's really helpful um 
now that like my training doesn't really suffer. And right. it, it took maybe a year, maybe a year, like kind of my training suffered, but now it's like, we can do yeah. And the other thing I think about is all the people, all those lives you wouldn't have been able to touch if you were up there for a year. So we yeah. are always, we are always at the place we are, where I always have to believe we're here and this is cause this is where we're supposed to be Yeah, because there are so many lives you would not have been able to touch if you would have waited that other year. So yeah. um, your sacrifice for them. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what is your, nor- because you are teaching and I know back when I, when I was, when I was, when I was fighting professionally, mm-hmm. the biggest thorn in my side, the hardest part was the fact that I love to teach more than I'd like to compete. I was mm-hmm. competing really to put money on the table mm-hmm. uh, or food on the table to get money in my pocket and to mm-hmm. get a rep- reputation and have to be proud that my st- students had their instructor that was a good competitor. Uh, but the hardest part was putting that teaching aside for my own training because yeah. training was for me, at least in the kickboxing world was a lot different than uh, teaching in the kickboxing world. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, what's your training schedule like? Cause you're teaching so much or do you have instructors that teach and fill those gaps for you so you can get your own training in or do you get your training in while you teach? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. And you made an important distinction there about how, how training is different than teaching. And I think so many people fall into the trap of, of like they start coaching jiu-jitsu and they're teaching group classes and they're teaching private lessons and they feel like, you know, Hey, I've been on the mats four hours or six hours today. I've, I'm done, but you haven't like actually trained at all. You've just been teaching. Yeah. So when I opened the gym, I actually just had this conversation with, um, Jimmy Pedro from Fuji yeah. about how like, uh, one of the lines that I drew in the sand when I first opened the gym was like, my training comes first, period. Um, oh, wow. I knew okay. I, I knew I would suffer. Like, I knew I'd become one of those, like, you know, inactive competitor coaches if, if I didn't do that. So I decided that, like, I would never sacrifice a training session to run the business. I would never sacrifice, you know, like, um, a lift for, you know you know, teaching a class, like I always had to prioritize my training first and kind of work everything around that. And since I knew the guy who was writing up the schedule pretty well, I, you know, I had the luxury of, <laughs> of making some of those sacrifices. But um, basically, on top of the classes that I teach and running the business and that kind of thing, I try to get an hour of drilling and an hour of rolling every day minimum. So is that like your afternoon drilling? So is that kind of your time? Yeah, at noon we have we have uh, we have six a.m. classes and we have noon drilling and then we have all the evening kids and adult classes. So at the noon drilling, it's just an hour, you know, hour fifteen session where we grab a partner and just rep the fuck out of the moves. That's when we do our ten thousands, you know, ten thousand okay. triangles, ten thousand knee yep. slices, that kind of thing. And so um, I try to have someone like Andrew or Jonathan Hart, one of our you know badass blue belts that's on the team right now, someone that like is, is relatively close to my level, or can at least like give me the right reactions. Yes. And and we just drill you know relentlessly for an hour, hour fifteen, and um, and, and there's there's some great thoughts into like how how we drill and kind of drilling the periphery and stuff. So you're not just like drilling say the knee slice, but after you do that a thousand times, then you start drilling you know the two common reactions and getting those, you know, those muscle twitch reactions and that kind of thing. So an hour of drilling like that, and then at least an hour of the live training, you know, so at night after the technique class, we have an hour, hour, 15 hour, 30 minutes of like hard live training. And if I get an hour of drilling and an hour of training, and then on top of that, I do like stretching and conditioning. So those two hours, at least two hours of like mat time for me per day, then that's, that's good. Okay. So, so I always kind of, I break things down. I always say this smart training. So it's, the S stands for specific. The um, 
uh, I always take them out of order because they used to call it Mars. But <laughs> the, 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 uh, is it like smart goals? Specific, yeah, that, no, measurable. The, well, it would be it would be like speci- S is for specific training, so that'd be rolling and drilling. M okay. is for mental. That that might be watching film. Okay. L that might be playing video games. It might be reading a book on game theory. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the A is for ancillary, so that would be your your weightlifting, your conditioning, your plyometrics, whatever it may be. Okay. Um, and of course the R is for rehab. So that would be your stretching, your mm-hmm. yoga. If you have an injury, you specifically, and then T is time off. Okay. Um, I've changed it up a little bit, but that's why I had to look at that there. So it sounds like the majority of your training is around that S that specific training. Um, this, the training that I've, that I've just described. Yes. On top of that, I try and, and I, and I sometimes fail on these benchmarks, but these are at least what I'm shooting for on top of the hour of live training and the hour of drilling that I try to get minimum every day. I stretch for 20 or 30 minutes a day. So that the rehab, so the rehab, I'm, I'm like, I'm picturing this as a pie right now. Yeah. So I'm kind of seeing, okay. Um, I, I try to do lifting three times a week and then conditioning two times a week. Okay. Um, and, and I'm, I fall short on those quite a bit, but that's like what I try to shoot for. And when you say conditioning, are you doing like ropes? Like, are you doing sprints, sprinting, yes. long runs? Yeah, sprints, that kind of thing. Okay. Do you ever do go for long runs? Is that I don't go for you, long okay. runs. Yeah, I'm not a runner. I sprint like like once a week. I do short, fast sprints to get my cardio in um, and stuff like battle ropes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not a long distance runner. Lot, Does this... Oh, I'm sorry. A lot of my students are, but I, I feel like just the the impact like on the knees and on the body. I don't, I can't, I can't I don't even do it anymore. know if it's good. And I just had knee surgery. And so I'm like not doing that kind of thing. Okay. Does this, does this regiment change at all when you have a competition leading up? Do you, is it pretty much standard? This is your routine. It doesn't. I train, I train every day like worlds is next week. Okay. Awesome. Yep. I love that. And so there's no necessary quote camp for you. Yeah. This is your camp. It's yeah. your life. Every, every day is my camp. And then, uh, the other part of training, and I, I know that, that, that you're going to be all about this, but a lot of people overlook is, is days off. You know, it's I huge. That's why it's when I say smart, yeah. that T is time off. Yeah. And people like, especially people like us that are, that are pretty hardcore, you know, like they, they feel like they're bitching out when they take a day off. And I know I do, but like, I think to be a successful athlete, you've got to condition yourself that your, your rest days are part of your training. Yeah. I think especially as you get older, mm. cause I mean, you know, I try to keep up with Jackson. I try to take him to as many training sessions as possible. Mm-hmm. There's times where, um, professor Reggie will ask me, it's like, Hey, you want to teach tonight? I'm like, yeah, yes, absolutely. Because I, I can feel it. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm about ready to get, and I, I have a whoop. I know everybody jokes around that I can't do one podcast without talking about the whoop. And I watch that. I watch it very closely for my recovery. What's a whoop? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's basically a device that tracks your sleep patterns, your strain patterns, and it gives you advice on how, how strenuous you should be for that day to optimize. Okay. It, basically it's it's you, you're trying to get to this point where not you're not working on diminishing returns gotcha yeah and you're avoiding injury gotcha and i'm so plagued with injuries as it is sure i, I do have to keep that but you're right no matter even when i do that and i follow my whoop yeah. i still feel like i'm bitching out yeah but i know in my head and i'll hear it from my wife she's like you need to take some time off you're not competing anymore you're just what the fuck are you doing yeah i'm like no no no. we're gonna go don't worry <laughs> I'm, I'm good don't worry about it you know? yeah um, so, uh, yeah, that time off is important. Um, but even if it's time off and you're watching film, it's still not true time off. It's great. You're watching film. You got to fill it with something. Yeah. But yeah, man, I, I hear what you're saying. That time off sometimes is, it's, it's a hard thing to do because even though I'm not competing, like I used to, 
I always think about the other person that that the other masters four old fuck <laughs> fat ass super heavyweight that's training and I'm not. Yeah, and I'm gonna meet that dude. Yeah, and but I have to remember you have to train smart. First person you know I ever heard talk like that was Randy Couture. Really? Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm too old. I can't train like I used to. I'm like, what? That doesn't wow. make sense to me. <laughs> but it 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 does. It has yeah. some validity to it. Yeah, for sure. So what for for some possibilities of people to put into their you've already talked about some awesome information but some more potential tools for the toolbox and when it comes down to like the day of the competition or let's even say the night the night before the comp do you cut weight at all first of all I you're don't. not a big weight cutter i don't and this is maybe something i should be better about like andrew tells me i should compete one weight class lower and, and, and lightweight i'm a middleweight and i i want to get like bulk up in the middleweight and be a little stronger yeah um but uh i'm on that edge where i could do either one my personal philosophy is that like I don't like to cut water weight or to like have to watch what I eat or whatnot to the point where it affects my mental like you know yeah. all my mental faculties like I'm stressing about being on weight and whatnot I'd rather be hydrated be calm and be ready to you know kick ass yeah I agree with you and as you get older when you have a family mm-hmm. and you're traveling with them yeah because <laughs> you got to make a family trip out of these competitions yeah they start to suffer because you're not eating with them yeah so yeah I think that that's that's I, I don't know personally spending my whole life losing weight mm-hmm. there's something to be said for that mm-hmm. to being strong mentally okay mm-hmm. um there's some guys that perform better when they're angry and dehydrated and but i'm not one of them yeah so and you know that, that i may play with that again i may go back to trying lightweight you know andrew when andrew tells me to do something i try to fucking listen because he's he's a yeah. five-time world champion and i haven't won worlds yet so yeah. it's like you yeah, know no, maybe, no, no. maybe if you have advice i should listen to it but to answer your question that's that's where i'm at right now is, is i don't cut so the night before you're good you eat do you have a routine meal like a traditional meal i don't um i try one of my students has like his lucky underwear he wears you know to every competition <laughs> I, I don't have anything like that but um i try to eat you know sweet potatoes or like something you know something good like good carbs and whatnot okay but right. I, i'm i'm not as like diligent on the diet as I should be. Sure. Um, and the day before, it depends on what time of the day I compete. You know, yeah. sometimes you'll be at that 9.30 a.m. and sometimes you'll compete two or three in the afternoon. That's always a hard thing to gauge. So mm-hmm. do you pack stuff in your bag at all? Do you, you like put a couple of bananas, sandwiches, nothing like that? In there? Yeah, something like that. You know, you know, a granola bar or something like that. But I'm, uh, nothing like too regimented. Like I have to have my, my Lara bar and my acai bowl yeah. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I have to have mine afterwards. Um, but so, okay. So, so nothing really specific the night before, but you, you eat smart. The, the morning of it all depends on when you're competing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't like to have a lot on my stomach. Right. Right. Go in a little hungry. Yeah. Okay. I always like that. I always like that idea for myself and what's what I've always told guys that I fought with. You'd be a little hungry going in. Mm-hmm. Um, any type of pre-fight music that you listen to that is your jam? So I actually don't listen to music. I've okay. never listened to music in the bullpen or, or like warming up or anything. Yeah. Um, it's just, I heard David Goggins talk about this one time. How it's like cheating. It's, it's like <laughs> if, you, if you need that to get you into your mental state, then right. like you're not really mentally strong. I don't know. Everyone's different. Some Most people seem to thrive listening to music. I've never done it. And... Uh, I I played with different like mental strategies because I still get you know I still get pretty nervous at like all the big tournaments. Right. I'll still get you know get the butterflies and whatnot. Even when you're like used to it, you still have that like knee jerk reaction. And there's this I think it's a Jay Z lyric from some some rap song where he says I never um, I never feared death or dying. I only feared never trying. And oh, nice. I just keep saying that to myself when I'm in the bullpen. Like so that's that's like, like my mantra. mantra. Yeah. 
Yeah, I personally, um, a, a, a really good friend of mine, you got to meet her one day. Her name is uh, Mina. Uh, she's a brown belt that used to train with us. She's actually with Flavio Almeida right now. She put out a question. About, What's her last name? Uh, Burn, Burnside. Mina okay. Burnside. Okay. I hope I'm saying her last name right. She'll kill me if I'm not. <laughs> um, she put out that question, and uh, that's kind of where I got it, pre-fight music. And I thought to myself, the thing I love the most is the overhead Jimmy Jenkins, Matt number four. I love the overhead sound. Yeah. I love the sound, that white noise. Yeah. Where I no longer listen to music either. Not, yeah. And I, I know what you're saying about the David Goggins thing, for sure. I wish I had a mantra like you had. That's sweet. But I love the sound yeah. of this. Just Even when I'm watching matches on Flow Grappling, there's something about that sound that just makes me make, it's just amazing. It gives you the goosebumps. It or, does. It makes yeah. me feel young again. It yeah. makes me feel like I was in those days where I had to fight to make money so yeah. I could eat. And and that's linking it to something mentally, I think is important. You know, like, yeah. like, like some people I've heard Travis Stevens, who, who's one of my like competition heroes. He talks about the playlist that he listens to. Oh, the endorphin release. He doesn't yeah. share it with anyone because he said the playlist that I listen to is supposed yes. to bring me to a certain mental state that wouldn't do that for you. And so, yeah. you yeah. know, so for me, I, I psych myself out really badly if I start, you know, like thinking about the match or overanalyzing. Yeah. So I just, I just try to watch, you know, I watch the matches next to me. I just like pay attention to other shit. I'll read a book. I just do anything except focus on the match at hand. And I try to like not worry about it until I step on the mats. And then one of the mental things that I've learned to do over the years is, you know how you roll differently with someone if they're in your gym versus if you go to their gym? Yes. When I go on the mats, you know, I try to keep my mind off of everything except except the fight until I step on the mat and the ref calls you over. When I run out there and I shake his hand, I look at that guy and I'm like, all right, this motherfucker is in, in my training room now. He's in the pedagogue room. All my teammates are on the wall coaching me. It's a metal, you know, what we, what we call metal a metal match, match yep. in the training room. And I'm going to, which I've stole that from you. Have you? you don't mind. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I tell her, you know, I tell myself I'm going to kick his ass in front of my teammates because he's in my training. Like in my head, I put him in my safe place, if you will. Like he's uh, in the pedagogue room and we're not right. at the competition. You know, everyone else around isn't there. It's just us and my team in my room and I'm going to kick his ass. That and is amazing. That That's seems to help mindset. me a little bit. Good mindset, yeah. Again, if, if I were to imagine that we're competing, you know, on flow grappling in front of 30,000 people or, you know, hey, I'm in his training room, it's just like mentally it breaks you a little bit. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That that leads me to another question that I actually didn't have on my list, um, but took me back to my days because the mental mm-hmm. coming into the because you said something about the nerves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when I finally didn't have nerves and I'm like, I need to get this fucking fight over with and I need to collect my 50 bucks <laughs> yeah. and get the hell out of here. I knew I was done fighting. Wow. At that point, I'm like, this is nothing here for me. Wow. You know, cause at this point I don't have the heart. If this becomes a hard fight, yeah. I just want that money. Yeah. Um, there's another mindset I had at that time. How do you, how has it been now that you have your own students? Is that a different pressure on you? Does it not bother you? Does it motivate you? Or do you put it out of your head when you're actually competing? Uh, I don't, I don't think that bothers me in, okay. the, in the, in the competition. I, it pushes me in the training room because I always tell my students like, you know, um, that if, if I'm not the hardest working person on my own mats, I'm failing you guys. 
And gotcha. so every training session, I try to outwork everyone. And there are some hungry white belts there that want to that want to work harder Dude, than me. You got me. some monsters, man. And thanks, man. They they work really hard. But it pushes me when I see you know I see Matt or Jacoby or you know Jackson or like these guys that want to they want to work harder than me. And you know maybe maybe we're between rounds and they're popping out one more burpee, and I'm like, you motherfucker, I've got to you know <laughs> like it makes me work harder. Yeah, so, yeah, so awesome. I, I'd say having my own students and and my own training room helps push me in the training room, but it doesn't really affect me when I'm competing. It doesn't psych me out. Like I've got to perform better for the students, you know, cause like yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm out there for me. I'm not there for them. So, you know, I, I think we mentioned this beforehand, um, but I don't want to get too much into it. Somebody said one time, don't talk too much before a podcast because some of the best conversations <laughs> take place. And not. So I didn't want to get too much into it. And it's a hard, hard, hard subject, but I found that these type of discussions help more people than you will ever, ever imagine. And that's being vulnerable and talking about dealing with defeat. And mm -hmm. I think dealing with winning, I think they're good and they're, they're positive and negative ways of dealing with winning. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that we tend to forget is that people lose. Everyone loses. Mm -hmm. Um, I had this conversation with Jackson. He's like, Gordon Ryan doesn't lose. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> there's always an outlier. There's yeah. always an outlier, but for the most part, one of the most beautiful things about the sport that we look back on years and years later are actually our losses. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any favorite losses or favorite lessons that you've learned or ways that you've dealt with, you know, not performing the way you want to? I know one time you, you were fighting for the fight to win mm -hmm. belt. We watched that. Mm -hmm. Um, we saw like maybe two days later, you put some kick ass, <laughs> like Clay Mayfield does not work hard enough. Like a little, <laughs> little deal up. That was a wonderful way of dealing with, I don't, I forgot exactly what you wrote, but it was something very motivated. I mean, it was, yeah. it was awesome. I appreciate it. Um, what, what happened was I, I, I went down, Flo Grafflin was filming this, like the whole Pedigo team going out and competing. And I was the only one on the team. They did it twice. And the first time we all won, like all seven of us won our yeah, fights. I remember that night. Yeah. That was amazing performance from all you guys. You, I don't. Did you ever listen to the commentary of your yeah. fight? <laughs> yeah, that it was. It was yeah. great. Thanks, man. Yeah. I, that was a fun night. Well, we, yeah. we went back to do it again, like two weeks later, and I was the only one on the team that lost my fight, and I had a title fight against another brown belt for like the fight to win middleweight. Who's a killer? He, he's he's yeah. a stud. Yeah. But I was trying to be way too passive, and I was playing like I was playing on bottom, and I normally play on top, and it was like I was doing several things that weren't my normal game, mm -hmm. and I was kind of like respecting his game too much instead of just fucking going for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was really pissed at myself. And then, of course, it's embarrassing losing on flow grappling and being the only one on the team that lost and all that stuff that no one else really cares about, but it's all in your head, you yep, know? Yep, absolutely. Nobody gives a fuck about it. Yeah. And so they had a, they had a, um, a piece of paper for all of our, like, chairs where we could warm up because they, they were trying to, like, social distance everything. So they had, all, like, all the warm-up chairs and mats mm -hmm. spread apart. So they had, like, a piece of paper that said Clay Mayfield and it had my name on it. Um, so I, I took that back and I, I just wrote, like, I left my name and then I put under it like lost the title fight and needs to train harder and I had this spot on, on the wall where we hang up all our medals on the wall and I was going to hang up the fight to win belt so I put that bitch up there instead and it's still up there <laughs> oh I didn't know it's, okay, okay oh, yeah, it's still yeah. up there it's okay. staying up there until yeah. I get the belt <laughs> yeah man that's that's awesome that's good motivation Um, uh, so g going on to that and, mm -hmm. and I think that's great motivation because I man I can we can have a whole podcast on this mm -hmm. the amount of people that have come up to me the amount of people that I have I probably would not be as competitive as I am right now if I didn't see Reggie lose his first match I ever watched him fight in. Hmm. Wow. And I've seen him destroy people. And I thought to myself, wait a second, I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. 
and it was because I saw somebody lose. It's crazy. Yeah. I saw him lose, get back in the gym, and then work hard, work hard, and then kick ass after that. I think he, after that, he took second or third at Worlds. Wow. Uh, injured with a broken rib. I mean, so that type of motivation, we get a lot from seeing our heroes not do as well as they would want themselves to do. Yeah. Is there any particular like favorite difficulty that you work through that somebody could take that and get some motivation from? Um, man, I hope honestly, if I understand the question correctly, just that I, I think the biggest hurdle that I've had to overcome is being with the wrong team for eight years. Oh, nice. Okay. And, okay. and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do a podcast or, or, or make a video or something soon outlining my whole story and like just telling like what, what it was, you know, all the things we, we weren't able to get into today. Right. Um, and, and the reason I do that, I've thought long and hard about that. It's not because I'm bitter with my old team or whatever. It's just because if, if anyone else feels like they're not a good fit for their team, I want people to understand it's okay to find where you're their best fit. You right. Know? And so I'd say the biggest hurdle I had to overcome wasn't like an individual loss or, or whatnot. It was just that like for eight years, you're kind of with, uh, not with people who have your best interest in mind and you're not on the right path. And then it takes a lot of like momentum to change your velocity yeah. and try to find somewhere yeah. that is a good fit. And then we talked about being like behind the curve. And if it's like, fuck, I'm already a brown belt. I've just got to work twice as hard and try to catch up, you know, to all the other guys that are already at the world level of brown belt. And so it's taken a lot of losses, a lot of like hard work, honestly, a lot of wanting to quit and everything else um, to, to be where like I feel like I'm competitive at Brown Belt. And so, yeah, that, that's the biggest okay. awesome. thing, hopefully. now I, I, I hope you do that because that, that is huge. We live kind of in a, there's always a, a, I don't give a shit if people take this the wrong way. Mm-hmm. In our lifestyle, there, there's some strange people that, that are attracted to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm a strange guy. I'm fucking weird. You know, <laughs> um, you know, little kid that wanted to be a Jedi and figured out, shit, I can't move things with my mind. You know? <laughs> you know, I learned to kill people with my hands then, you know, I mean, we just have strange folks that gravitate to our sport and we do have father figures that are in our sport, but we shouldn't be following blindly. And yeah. the zealot mindset is a dangerous mindset in martial arts. Mm-hmm. I think we may, I think we may have talked about this earlier. Oh, I talked about this on another podcast about why why do women not fall into it as much? Mm-hmm. Because I actually said something pretty crude that I won't repeat here. Um, but I said because at a very young age they've always been trying to ta- been taken advantage of, and they're like, "This is bullshit. You guys are nuts. Yeah, why are you following this asshole?" Yeah, women have a better like uh, um, a much better instinct to that. Yes, and my explanation for that was because men are trying to take advantage of them at a very young age, and they yeah. get a pick up on that. Yeah, they get and, a good like um, shit filter. Yeah, so yeah, so if yeah, I think that's a very powerful message that you have because unfortunately we do have people that are looking for leadership and we're looking for a father figure and we're looking for mm-hmm. this guidance. And some of us are lucky enough to find it, and some of us are lucky enough to, or unlucky enough to find it in a person, like I told you, my first instructor beforehand, yeah. who um, taught me an immense amount of information, but mentally wasn't right yeah. and should have broken away earlier. And we have this weird, like, this weird misguided sense of loyalty in jiu-jitsu as if, and, and, and this is something people have been talking about extensively recently. Yeah. It's almost as if, like, it's unloyal or wrong for you to like seek a better fit with another team or yeah. another gym. Oh, it's unethical you know? of yeah, some sort. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with ethics. Yeah. It has to do with fits. Yeah. And um, I think you had said one time in one of your posts, if if somebody finds somebody else better, that's a better fit for them, that's great. But yeah. if your student comes here and they feel like 
they're a good fit. That's good. Be happy for them. Yeah. And they yeah. should be happy for them. Yeah. Um, but I think people's egos get tied up too much into things. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I look at myself as an, an amazing instructor. I really do. That's my strongest point I can teach. I can teach medicine. I can teach jujitsu. I can teach Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. Um, I know where my limitations are. And if my teaching style doesn't fit you, mm-hmm. maybe I praise too much. Maybe I'm not hard enough. Maybe I explain things too much. Mm-hmm. I like to think of myself on that, that level of we're talking academics. I'll spend half a class talking about you know, the nuances of mechanics with the right students. Mm-hmm. That might be too much for somebody. Yeah. And if it is, I would love to adjust it for you, but it's kind of how I do it. It's kind of how we're, I'm doing it for the majority of the people in the class. If yeah. it was pure white belts, it would be different. Yeah. Okay. Find something that's a better fit. I want you to, what yeah. I don't want you to do is leave the sport. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and, and I understand why people get, you know, like heard about it. Cause like you invest a lot. Oh yeah. You, there's you a bit of ego a, for yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. But if I have a girl that likes another guy better than she likes me and I truly care about her happiness, it's going to hurt when she leaves me. Cause yeah. I wasn't the right fit for her and I liked her. Yeah. But you know what? Ultimately, honey, be with somebody that you feel more comfortable with. That's a great analogy. <laughs> well, I think it's used in the other way that, you know, Oh, that bitch left me. I, I fucking kill her. It's like, whoa, whoa, hold on, buddy. Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with yeah. you? You can, I think you, uh, Boris Yeltsin said, you can build a throne of bayonets, but you can't sit on it for long. <laughs> that's excellent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's going to be incredibly helpful. So, um, hey, man, I got a, a couple of uh, rapid fire questions for you. Okay, yeah. man. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with that because I know you're, you're busy and we've been going for a little bit here. So, uh, um, and like I said before, if you don't have any answers, don't, don't worry about okay. it. Okay. Don't so worry. these are, these are questions that I've gotten mainly from, uh, when I was on a ping pong session with professor Reggie, where we had to ask each other 10 questions. Some of them I got from Tim Ferriss and other ones. Actually, I think I might've got a couple from, from that, uh, Travis Stevens interview. Okay. So, um, if this is one I got from that interview, if not Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Judo. Okay. I thought that would be there. Super fight. This is another one I got from them. Super fight or somebody else. Super fight versus tournament style. What do you prefer? Tournament, one hundred percent. Okay. I hate having just one match. Do you really? Yes. How the fuck do you warm up for tournament? Because um, that's the thing I've struggled with, bro. Because remember, when I came from the fighting world, mm-hmm. man, I got the one fight. I'm warmed up. I'm sweating by the time I get into the ring. Yeah. And that was even true in, in karate, like karate, sport karate. I mm-hmm. could warm up beforehand because mm-hmm. I didn't need the ground. Jackson and I went to, to Pans, mm-hmm. and he's like, where are the mats? I'm like, bro, there are no mats. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're doing it here on this hard service. Yep. <laughs> so um, how do you warm up? I have a couple... Um, a couple things I do, like I'll, you know, I'll measure a distance at whatever the venue is and I'll, I'll do a couple laps of like walking, running, a couple flat out sprints, then kind of cool down and then do okay. a few stretches uh, just for mobility. But the main thing with my warm up, it's, it's short. It's my least favorite part of competing. It's the hardest match for me. <laughs> I just, I just have to get that warm out of the way to blow my lungs. Yes. Uh, if I don't blow my lungs and break a little sweat, then I pay for it my first match. Oh, I, I've, I've had, um, I, I, I straight up lost a match yeah. one time because of it. Yeah. I, I I did not blow my lungs beforehand. I hit a lasso sweep, beautiful position. Everything was great. And then I could not, I was done. Wow. I was done, 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 done. Mentally, I'm like, you fucking pussy in my head, <laughs> yeah. in my head. I feel like I get the underhook. I'm like, what the, come on, move. And, yeah. and it's, I didn't, yeah, biggest just, mistake ever. 100%. Yeah, okay. So I've got to blow my lungs and then my warm-up's done. But I... I Tournament every day of the week. I hate having just one match. Okay. All right. All right. Um, favorite place you've ever trained? Uh, PSF headquarters. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, most memorable competition moment, good or bad? 
off the top of my head winning uh, winning the open weight at German Nationals. Oh, that's um, awesome. Because I I'm German and like I was competing, uh, you know, right before I opened the gym and I I, I almost double golded. I took silver and then gold on the open weight. Okay. And it was uh, it was my first tournament under the Pedigo team. That's cool. And it was in my home country, so it was like. And you speak German, right? I do. Yeah. I guess not my home country, but my my like country of my origin. Yeah. So that was probably one of my most memorable ones. Cool, man. Okay, so this is one I got when uh, when I was on Reggie's uh, podcast. Okay, dream super fight. I want your opponent dead or alive. I want your walkout music, and if you could have one person in your corner. Damn. Um, I'm gonna have to think on that for a second. Can okay, we circle back to that, that one? one? Yeah, let's go. That, that, yeah, that is the really dead or alive, I, I think, adds to okay. Um, so it was dream opponent, it was who in your corner, and your walkout music. Okay, okay, okay. Um, is there a particular book, and it doesn't have to be jujitsu, it could be an instructional, I don't even give a shit if it's a movie or an audio book. <laughs> is there anything pretty inspirational that if you said, okay, um, Every Christmas, I'd love to give one of these to every single one of my friends. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular thing like that that's really impact your life that you'd want to share with people? A, a book or something like that? Yeah. Extreme yeah. Ownership by Jocko. Okay. It's the, sing, the yep. single most life-changing book I've ever read. It's the actual book that when I'm, when anybody gets a promotion that I work with, I buy that book for them. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. We do a student of the month at Triangle, and it's, uh, it's either like a, a kid or an adult alternating every month. And for the adults, we give out that book. And for the kids, we give out the Way of the Warrior yep, Kid. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Reggie has the competition kids uh, reading book two now. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, so um, we talked about your favorite failure. Um, if, you can have, if you could have a commemorative gi, so one day Pettigo is going to get big. Mm-hmm. Um, they're big already, but mm-hmm. they're going to they're gonna get huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it or not, they may be like Gracie Baja at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you have to buy this gi. You have to buy this <laughs> And uh, Pettigo comes out with uh, a Clay Mayfield commemorative gi. What would that gi have on it as a slogan or a saying that could reach other people? So we know that, you know, like Gracie Baja has jujitsu for everyone. Um, uh, Hyperfly uh, has uh, you can't train heart or you can't. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, it's, I have their belt. I can't even tell you what it says. You can't train heart. What would your what would your gi say? What kind of message would it give? Man, there's a lot of good messages we could we could give on there. Um, a couple things, uh, maybe the best way to answer that is just a couple things that I constantly tell the people in my training room. Yeah, um, is just be the hardest working person on the mats. You know, dude, right there, that's awesome. Hardest working person on the mats. Um, we also say embrace the suck a lot. Yeah, you know? yeah I like it's that. Like, yeah, embrace the suck. Not every part of the journey is going to be fun, but you just embrace the suck. And you don't want it to be fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, nice. I like it. Um, in the last five years, how has your perspective, and I think you pretty much answered this, how has your perspective of jujitsu changed? Or how about this, since you've opened up your own gym? I don't know that my perspective has changed much since I've opened the gym. I just, uh, you know, I, in the last five years, I think what happened was I went from, I went from cruising along to understanding that I had the potential to be something. Yeah. And Heath is Heath is the one that really like lit that fire in me. I remember teaching kids classes back at my first gym and we were having some kind of like, you know, character talk. And I just remember like offhandedly saying, no, I'll never be like a world champion or whatever. And and so many times I wanted to go back and just bitch slap that younger version of myself, just like time machine, appear on the mats, slap the shit on myself and disappear. Because <laughs> like, 
I was meant to like selling myself short, you know? Yeah. And like, uh, when I got there and I started training, you know, with Heath and Andrew, and then, you know, we went through how I slowly joined the team, but all those times when I was going there and just getting my, like my shit pushed in and just like, you know, yeah. getting crushed by everyone. So many times I was like discouraged and I lost like four IBGFs in a row first round over a few weeks. And I remember calling Heath and being like, man, I don't think I'm going to do worlds this year. And like all those times like that, Heath was just the one that was like, listen, man, you have the potential to be one of the best in the world. Like you can do it. Just put in the work. We believe in you. And all those times I didn't believe in myself, Andrew and Heath and all those guys like believed in me for me Yeah. until I started to slowly believe in myself. So I, that's the biggest change in the last five years is just that I started to fucking believe in myself. So that's a huge and powerful message for anybody that watches you, looks up to you in any way, shape or form, because that's a human, that's part of the human existence mm -hmm. of not having that belief. Mm -hmm. There's some rare individuals that are delusional and they have it, mm -hmm. but the rest of us, we need that support system. Mm -hmm. We need people to help us along. And when you got that, that's huge. So yeah. don't think if you don't instinctively have that, don't think that jujitsu is not for you or competition is not for you or becoming a world champion is not for you. Yeah. So, because you could see the best in the world at some point, they needed that person on the other end. And that's what, I mean, I, I, like I said before, I, Heath, pretty genuine guy comes across that way. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's like, I wouldn't be here if like they, so many times you quit when you don't believe in yourself and like yep. they, they believed in me for me until I yeah. started to do it. That's amazing. It's amazing. Um, did you have time to think about that uh, competition? I, I did, man. My, <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> my walkout song would be um, The Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. Okay, cool. Um, Andrew in my corner. Okay. And fucking anyone. I'll fight anyone. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I like it. I like it. I like it. That's good. All right, man. Well, we're, um, one last question. We're going to end with this one. Okay. And this is a tough one. It's like the end of a... It's like the, the term question at the end of a philosophy like at the end of your semester in philosophy. Okay. You get the paper and your whole grade counts on this. That's and a just, doozy. And it just says, why question mark? Why, why the fuck do you do this? This is not an easy lifestyle. Yeah. This is not a lifestyle that guarantees $500,000 every year. It's not a lifestyle where your health is even, you know, guaranteed. It's not a lifestyle where, um, you get an injury I don't know about you, but when I was fighting, I didn't have any insurance. I didn't have insurance until I met Amy. Yeah. Um, why do you do this? Can I answer in, in more than like one sentence? Absolutely. Um, competing. I compete because I fucking can't stand the thought that anyone's better than me. And even though I know it's not true, you know, I know that like, I, I know in my head, I'll probably never be like the next Gordon Ryan. I know it's probably too late. You know, all these like reasons in my head, I still can't fucking stand the thought that someone nice. else is better than me or yeah. working harder than me. So like, that's why I compete. Um, and I, and I just, I love testing myself as far as the training and the teaching and, and the, like opening the gym and all that kind of thing. The why is because I've never been motivated by money. Like I, I want to get rich teaching jiu-jitsu someday. You know, I, I don't think it's like a bad thing to make money, um, you know, by running a gym, but I've never cared about having X amount of dollars in the bank. I've just cared about jujitsu. And as long as I have enough to like travel and, and like do what I want to do with competing and travel, I don't care about anything past that. And jujitsu is the only thing in my life that's ever made sense, you know, coming yeah. from coming from the, the, the fucked up, you know, early life stuff and, and, and like into 
trying to figure adulthood out and dating girls and just like all this, you know, <laughs> all, all this stuff. Jiu-jitsu is the only thing in my life that's ever made sense. And okay. when I looked at everything else through the lens of jiu-jitsu, when I was on the mats, it was clarity. And, and I just love that for myself and sharing with other people. Well, jiu-jitsu has benefited by you being involved in it and being a competitor and being a leader and a teacher and an inspiration to everybody that you meet. I've never met anybody that's ever, and I talk to a lot of people in this community. I've never met anybody that's had anything bad to say about you. Um, you have an incredibly bright future. I can't wait for you to get your black belt because you're going to tear the shit out of that division. Um, and I can't wait to see what your students do. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome. Can't wait to have you on in the future again, brother. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it, man. And with that guys, uh, we're going to close out and, uh, you know what? Um, stay safe, um, keep training and, uh, we'll talk to you soon.